pray together. Father, we thank you once again for this morning, for the chance to gather in worship and now to turn to your word. We come with humble hearts and Lord, we come to ask for your help. Uh, Help us by your spirit understand uh, these things that we read this morning. Would you help us uh, apply these truths to our lives? Would you uh, give us uh, conviction in our hearts where necessary? Would you comfort us, Lord, where we are discouraged and weary? Um, Would you teach us, inform our minds, and shape our hearts? Uh, Have your way this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, hey, once again, welcome to FBC. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. We're we're so glad that you are with us. I want to invite you, if you have a Bible, turn with me in your Bible to Acts chapter 3, verse 17. You heard it read aloud. That's where we're going to be starting this morning. Um, And as as Pastor Ian said, uh, we celebrated Easter last week, the resurrection of Jesus. And as he said, the good news is that Jesus is still alive, and today is still Resurrection Sunday. Um, Steve reminded me we have 52 Resurrection Sundays a year. And so today we celebrate that Jesus is still uh, risen, alive, seated on his throne. Um, so we're glad that you're with us. Again, Acts 3.17 is where we're going to be as we're walking through our sermon series through this book. Um, hey, back in seminary, I still remember in our first theology class there, our seminary professor uh, boldly declared right at the beginning of the class that the things that we think and say about God are the most important things that we think and say. Again, he said this, the things that we think and say about God are the most important things that we think and say. See, he wanted to impress upon us sprouting theologians that uh, the study of God, theology, is not some abstract or inconsequential uh, exercise that is disconnected from the rest of our lives. No, more important than, than all the other things that we think or say are the things that we think and say about God, meaning deep down in our hearts, what do we perceive God to be like? What is the, the, the picture of, our, of God that we have in our hearts? Because what we believe about God will shape our hearts, it will form us, it will set a trajectory for our lives unlike anything else. Now, we have to remember that, again, that's not just a warning or an invitation or encouragement for, for seminary students, because the reality is everyone is a theologian, right? Every one of us, whether we like it or not, whether we're aware of it or not, we're all theologians in, that, uh, in the sense that deep down in our hearts, even if we uh, can't always articulate it exactly, we have uh, this picture of God. We have these beliefs and convictions about who God is and what God is like. And that view, that picture, those beliefs about God will determine the trajectory of our lives. So, what do you believe God is like? How would you describe the heart of God? 
I'm so excited to jump into the text this morning because I believe it, it just paints this really beautiful picture. It's a clear picture of the heart of God, who God is and what he is like. And I know we're picking up in verse 17, right? That's what we left 16 we ended with last week, so 17 we're picking up uh, in. But I want to go a bit out of order uh, and jump ahead to the end of chapter 3. Uh, verse 25 and 26. So we're going to do something a little out of order. We're going to start with the end, but then we'll bring it all back and go 17 and on. You'll see what we're doing. So uh, let's look there at verse 25 and 26. It says, And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, Through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God seized up his servant, he sent him, speaking of Jesus, first to you to bless you. By turning each of you from your wicked ways. Now, remember with me for a moment where we've been, okay? Acts chapter 3, at the start of the chapter, we saw a lame man who was miraculously healed, right? His legs and his feet had not developed properly from birth, and so he was unable to walk or, or move or run, and he encounters Peter and John there near the temple, and they, in the name of Jesus, heal him in this miraculous, visible, powerful way, and the man uh, gets up, and he's running around, he's running throughout the temple, he's praising God and celebrating, and naturally people notice and they say, hey, we know that guy, he's the one who used to be lame and sitting at the gate, now he's walking, uh, what's going on? And they naturally want to know, what happened? And so a crowd kind of gathers there around Peter and John. The man is standing still with Peter and John, the crowd comes near, and, and Peter gives this speech, right, this sermon it's, it's the second like it in the book of Acts, where the crowd is left wondering, what in the world is going on? What have we just seen? And he stands up and, and delivers this message. Let me tell you what all of this means, he says. And remember, he starts by saying, hey, don't look at us. Right? It's not by our power or our piety or our godliness or our strength or whatever that we you know, healed this man. No, this man stands before you healed because of the work of Jesus, essentially, and through faith in him, he says, he says, you need to look up and remember, this is about what, what God is doing in our midst. He's doing something miraculous here. Jesus has been glorified. He's, he's raised from the dead, and he is at work even now. And, and what we see in, in our passage this morning, is it's still the same speech, the same sermon, the same setting. Peter's still talking to the crowd. We're just looking at the second half of it from verse 17 till the end of the chapter. We're still uh, unpacking that. He's talking to the crowd that's gathered. And so the end of the speech, verse 26 Speaking of Jesus, look again, he says, he sent, or God sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Peter's saying, hey, God wants to bless you. That's why he sent his son, Jesus. Jesus came first to the Jewish people, but, but ultimately, right, his message would be for the whole world. That the gospel would go out to the nations. But see the heart of God if you're like an underliner or a circler. In verse 26, again, he sent him first to bless you. That speaks of his intent, his heart, his desire to bless you. Let's just stop there for a moment. Because we had his heart on display. 
this week in our Rooted uh, Discipleship small group that we're doing that meets on Tuesday nights, Brian Maxwell, I don't know if Brian's here this morning, but Brian was leading the discussion, and the, the topic of the week was looking at serving God, how God has not only saved us, but now he's called us and gifted us by his spirit to love others and serve him uh, and be about his business in the world. And as we were uh, studying that this week, Brian, in the discussion, asked us this question. Based on what we've read so far this week, how would you describe the heart of Jesus? Because that week we had looked at passages like John 13 where Jesus washes his disciples' feet and he stoops down and gets into the the dirty gunk and smelly business of washing people's feet and he displays great love for his disciples. He has a heart to serve them in humility, to bless. And as we look at the ministry of Jesus beyond just John 13 and the washing of the disciples' feet, we see how Jesus moves towards people. Even, even unlikely people, even people we think that, oh, they're too, me- too messy or their life is too, you know, messed up or sideways. We see Jesus moving towards those people and desiring to touch them and heal them and forgive them and welcome them and serve them and love them and bless them. Based on the reading this week, how would you describe the heart of Jesus? And we were able to talk through all of that that we see on display in Scripture so again, similar question from Acts chapter 3, based on what we're reading here and seeing, how would you describe the heart of God? Peter's saying, well, hey, God wants to bless you. He's for you. He wants good things for you. I mean, Jesus, after all, said that he came to, uh, that we may have life, abundant life, life overflowing, life to the full and to the max. I want you to see, though, that this is not just like a, a New Testament idea. That as Jesus comes on the scene, he's like, oh, God is for you. Because sometimes we look at Jesus and the New Testament and say, well, he was great. Like, love, love him, right, in the message. But then we read the Old Testament we're like, we're not sure, you know, we like how things were done back there. Or it feels maybe, maybe different for some of us as we read through it. But I want you to notice here the connection that Peter is making. Throughout the passage, we see all these references to the Old Testament, right? To the prophets, to, he mentions Moses and Abraham and Samuel and so on. He, he more specifically points to, in verse 25, Abraham. And, and, and Genesis chapter 12, when God calls Abraham right, to leave the place that he's known, to go to a new land that God would lead him to. Uh, Genesis, this is the first book of the Bible, right? At the very beginning, chapter 12, God calls Abraham to start this new family, this new nation, this new people that would be blessed. They would know God in a special and unique way. But that through this people, through these people, they would bring blessing to all the peoples on earth. Right? Verse 25 of Acts chapter 3, you see he references that. He's essentially saying that this now is being fulfilled in this Jesus, in the coming of Christ, his work on the cross, his resurrection, and now the gospel going forth to the nations. This is the fulfillment of God's desire to bless all the peoples of the earth. And so my point is that Peter is saying, hey, realize, this has been God's heart all along. This isn't like some new idea that sprung up here in the New Testament. This is, hey, way back in Genesis, first book of the Bible, chapter 12, God's heart, his desire has been to bless all people on earth. And so Peter doesn't say, hey, let's just avoid that, you know, scary Old Testament 
and not talk about it. He says, no, this has been God's heart all along, his plan all along, looking even back to Abraham to send his son to save us. God wants to bless you. And so the question then, again, is that the picture that we have of God? See, what when we settle down and quiet the noise in our lives enough to really see what's going on in our hearts, do we believe that, that God's for us, that he wants to bless us? Or are we suspicious about God? Are we suspicious about his goodness and his motives? And if he really is for us, that he can be trusted. See, also, again, you go back to the first book of the Bible, Genesis, and you look at the first few pages of the Bible. You look at chapter 3, and you, you see our first parents, Adam and Eve, in chapter 3 of Genesis, fall into sin and rebellion, and at the heart of their sin was this doubt that God was really good. And then it fully believed that God was for them. And they believed the lie of the serpent. Do you remember the serpent comes on the scene? He says, you eat the fruit, you're not going to die. God's not keeping you from that fruit because you'll die. You won't die. It won't kill you. No, God doesn't want you to eat the fruit because if you do, what? Then you'll be like him. You'll be able to know and discern good from evil. And so God's actually holding out on you. There's more joy and life and knowledge that you can have that God doesn't want you to have. Could have. He's keeping it from you. He doesn't want you to have that abundant life that you could have. And they believed that lie. And they took the fruit. And so that, ever since, has been this default setting of the human heart. Suspicious about God. We're born with this inclination, turning away from God and his ways to think, you know what, he, he's actually not for me, so I have to go and find life on my own. I'm going to do things on my own terms and in my own way because that's going to be more fulfilling or satisfying, bring more joy or peace or whatever into my life than doing it God's way. That's why we fight his commands. That's why we, we fight his word. That's why we, we disobey because we think we're better off on our own. Makes me think about um, something that happened this past week. My two-year-old son, Shepard, uh, he got a splinter in his foot. And if I, I just hate splinters. Like, even just the thought of a splinter makes me cringe. They're awful. But you know what you got to do with the splinter, right? You got to get it out, right? You got to do the painful work with the needle or the tweezers or whatever and Get that thing out of there or else uh, it will lead to infection uh, or, or worse or whatever. But um, our two-year-old son, and he realized all of that. So all he sees is his dad coming at him with a needle. And he's like, this is not good. I'm out. Like, count me out. I'll take, I'll take my chances, right, with the splinter and infection. Amputate it if you want to, like later, but just don't come at me with that needle right now. Have you ever tried to get a toddler or, or a splinter out of the foot of a toddler or out of the hand of a toddler? Right? It's like you're competing in the rodeo, right? You're like, pin that hog down, Sally. Here we go. We got to get this thing out. It's, it's challenging. If you don't have kids yet, you, you'll, you'll experience it soon. But realize, like, all along in this, as his father, my heart is for him, right? I'm only moving towards him in this way to bring 
good things into his life. And even though there's some pain and discomfort associated with it, the outcome is going to be what? Healing and life and blessing and pain going away. If I don't do this, it'll continue to hurt and get more swollen and it'll fester and get worse. But he wasn't convinced of that. So it was very difficult. And actually, I can, what had to happen is um, our friends Ashton and Emily from our community group from church, many of you know them, they came over and we were visiting for a little bit and we learned Emily is like a skilled uh, magician, I guess, with a needle. And so we told Shepard, we're like, hey, do you want Emily to try and get the needle out of your foot? And he was like, yeah. And, you're and so he's, he's seriously just like, Psh, here's my foot. And I'm like, well, okay, I guess she's more trustworthy than your own father, but okay. And so he just lets her, you know, okay, no problem. We get that thing out. So good job, Emily. Thank you. And just hope my son learns to trust me a little more in the future. But do you see that we do? That's what we do with God, right? We get these splinters in our lives because of sin. And then rather than trusting our father and allowing him to do his healing work, in our lives, we move away from him because we don't, we don't see the bigger picture that actually his hand, maybe even though difficult or uncomfortable or hard at first, actually is going to lead us to life. He wants to protect us. He's given us his word, his laws, his ways, not to, again, rob us of joy, but to lead us to abundant life. He wants to protect us and teach us. Now, notice in the text... He said he wants to bless you. And how does this blessing come? What does verse 26 say? When, when God raised up his servant, he sent him, this being Jesus, first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. So this blessing we're talking about from God does not mean he, he's going to give you, you know, the cards and the income and the gifts and the toys and like, he was going to increase your mini golf score or lower out scores in the best way or whatever. He's, he's going to give you all those things. And the blessing he's talking about is this, this abundant life that comes when we turn from sin and wicked ways to our Savior and learn to walk in his ways. He's going to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. This is the language of, of repentance. Right? He blesses us when he turns us away from the oncoming traffic on the freeway that is sin and has us walk the other direction towards him and safety and life. <clears throat> when he turns us to the Savior and we experience his grace and forgiveness. And you notice his hand here, right? It says that he's the one turning us. He sent him first to bless you by turning each of you. So it's not that we woke up one day and like connected the dots and did the math just right. And we're like, oh, good, I, sh I should be a Christian. There's this sovereign work of God in the human heart that, that turns us towards him. And without that work of grace, we will not come. So we see that repentance is a gift. Faith is a gift that God gives to us. He's the one who turns us. Now, you see the same language back at the start. We're going back to the start, verse 17. The same language. Look, it says, Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you have sinned in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that this Messiah would suffer. And here it is, verse 19. Repent, then, and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. 
So in 17 and 18, he's talking to the crowd about how Jesus has been rejected and killed, uh, but raised from the dead. The Messiah had to suffer, but then was glorified. And he's saying, I know you acted in ignorance, but even though there's ignorance, there's still guilt and still repentance is needed. And so the call to repent is seen in verse 19. Repent, turn, turn towards God, he says. We've seen this language before, right? Do you remember chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost? Again, Peter preaches this powerful sermon about uh, what God was doing in their midst and the the people who hear it are cut to the heart and they say, brothers, what shall we do? And his response is what? Repent. Turn from sin. Turn to the Savior. Turn to God. No longer live for yourselves and in your sinful ways, rejecting the Savior, Jesus, Instead, turn and live in a way that is in line with God and His Word and His ways, surrendering to Him as Lord. Repent, he says. Again, sometimes we think of repentance, again, as a scary word, as a condemning word, a negative word. But again, it's, it's the path to life. He has to turn us from our sin and wicked ways to Him to experience life. And when we repent, it says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Again, here is not repent and just, just leave us in, in shame and under judgment. I just want you to know how bad you are and look at that, you're just the worst. Uh, he says, no, I want you to repent and turn from sin so that you would be forgiven, so that uh, your sins would be wiped away, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, that you would be refreshed. The, the verb here for, for, let's talk about those two things. First, uh, sins being wiped out and then refreshing from the Lord. First, your sins may be wiped out. The, the verb there for, again, wiped out, I mean, you know, to make disappear, to erase, to wipe away, to clear the ledger. Um, in, in Athens, if a, if a citizen was found guilty of a crime, punished uh, by death, they would be executed, but their name first would be erased, wiped out from the registry of citizens. It's the same word that's used in that context. Again, but for God, us, than than wiping out our names from the list of citizens, rather than erasing us and wiping us off the face of the earth, as he would be perfectly just in doing, instead he, he wipes out and erases our sin. He erases it from the written record. It's wiped away. I mean, imagine with me for a moment the relief that should come when our sins are wiped away. Imagine there's this, this, this written and uh, digital transcript of your sin. Uh, and let's just say we have like, you know, a video montage of it. We're going to throw up on the screen and we're just going to take turns and go around the room and each person's sins are going to be on display. It's going to be this, you know, multimedia audiovisual presentation of your sin, and even let's just start with your thought life uh, today so far. We'll just throw that up there. How's that sound? Um, and we'll see. Uh, imagine, uh, how would you feel if that was about to happen? Not good. I would not feel good. I would not want to be here if that was that, right? Um, now imagine, again, we're going around the room, and we're, we're just displaying the scrolling presentation of your thoughts and, and your actions and words from your past and from your present, all the sin of your life. And imagine that as that is being displayed, it's about to be your turn. 
And you're the one who is up next, and we're all going to see it and look at it together. Imagine, right, as the computer is about to be displayed on the screen, someone runs over and deletes uh, the transcript off the computer. And they, they wipe the hard drive clean, and so there's nothing left on the computer to display, and so your name pops up, and there's not going to be this, this, this you know, uh, Lord help us list of, of sins on display. What would your uh, feeling be in that moment? Whoo! <laughs> relief, right? Incredible relief. Peace. Oh, thank the Lord. So how much more then? If our sins are, again, on display, on the ledger before a holy and righteous God, and he sees it all, what good news is it then to know that in Christ our sins would be wiped out, the transcript would be erased, deleted off the hard drive of the computer, done away with, it would disappear. What joy and relief. Our sins are covered by the blood of Christ on the cross. Amen, this is such good news. He says, repent so that your sins may be wiped out. This is what Christ offers us. Not repent because God is grumpy or, or crusty or wants to harm you because he wants to bless you. He also says what? That times of refreshing may come from the Lord. That there would be this renewal in your heart. The Holy There's contextually good reason to believe that he's talking about the new life and power and transformation that comes from the Holy Spirit and his presence in your life. He changes our hearts. And so we could summarize this first part as talking about uh, refreshment in the present. This is what Jesus offers us. That times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Right, last week we talked about where do we look for the good life? The abundant life that we so desperately want to find. Just look to the Lord and he'll give you a new heart and his spirit within you and he'll forgive your sins. I mean, think about just the, the word pictures that Scripture gives us to talk about the work of God in our lives. It, thinking about um, a, a barren tree becoming a tree that is fruitful and producing good and beautiful fruit. Think about a desert wasteland being turned into streams and rivers, r uh, living water flowing and life springing up. Scriptures talk about, again, death and destruction and decay being transformed and turned into to life. Times of refreshing may come. I think about the change, the, the difference that the Holy Spirit makes in our hearts, that we're no longer just down and discouraged and, and weary with no hope, with no future. Instead, Lord, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within us, and the love of God is poured out into our hearts through the Spirit, Romans says. And we then experience the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So, he talks about the present, but he's not just talking about the present, he's also looking ahead, right? Look at verse 19, it says, repent then, turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus, heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. So he's not just talking about times of refreshing from the Lord, about your sins being wiped out. Now he's also pointing them forward to a time, 
he says, that he may send the Messiah, he may send Jesus. You're saying, wait a second, didn't he already send Jesus? Yes, we had the first coming of Christ. Uh, but this is pointing us ahead to the return of Christ. Right, verse 21, heaven must receive him until the time comes, until the time comes for God to restore everything. So we're not talking about just what's happening now and in the immediate and in the short term. He says, no, guys, I want you to look ahead. A time is coming. Convictions will return. This has always been a, a core conviction of the faith, the doctrine of the second coming, the return of Christ, um, things of, of eschatology. That's the study of the end times. Now, uh, there's differing views, plenty of them, on exactly what the end times are going to look like and uh, how that's exactly going to go. But one thing that all Christians agree on is the Lord Jesus is coming back. Right? He will return. The scriptures are very clear on that. And so we need to realize as the people of God, we are to live in light of that. We are to be a, a future-oriented people who don't just live in, in the now, who don't just live with a, with a temporary narrow view of things. We can zoom out enough to see the bigger picture. And as this talks about, we can be full of hope because Jesus is going to return and restore all things. That's what verse 21 says. Restore everything. Which is both a warning, hear me, a warning and an encouragement, right? It's a warning because verse 23 talks about those who do not listen to the Lord, those who not have surrendered, or who have not surrendered to Jesus. It talks about what? They'll be cut off from their people. There'll be destruction and judgment. So it's a warning. Jesus is coming back, and we should live in light of that. We should repent and turn to him now. But it's also an encouragement, Christ, for those who have embraced Christ as Savior. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We don't look forward and see judgment. No, we see that we've been forgiven, and so we look forward to the return of Christ with great anticipation and expectation and joy because it says he's going to restore everything, which is really good news because we look out at our world and we think, well, it's, um, it's kind of a mess, right? And I mean, we look at the newspaper. Does anyone read newspapers anymore? I know you look at the Google and scroll through digital news headlines. And you just see, like, just, just the brokenness in our world. And I don't have to run, you know, down the full list, but you already know immediately what I'm talking about. Just uh, violence and, and, and abuse and um, just so much wickedness and evil. I mean, just, just everywhere. We're hit with it every morning. Tragedy after tragedy and loss and grief and pain and heartache. And, and, and it just leaves us thinking the world is not supposed to be like this. And, and it's, it's such a mess and it's so overwhelming sometimes. Thing about how in the world is all of this going to get sorted out? And apart from the Lord Jesus, uh, it won't. <laughs> right? That's where our hope is, is that he will uh, be sent. He'll return again to restore everything. It's a great encouragement that the Lord Jesus is going to return. And he's going to sort it all out. And he's going to put an end to evil and evildoers once for all. And he's going to usher in his new kingdom the kingdom of God forever, marked by, by peace and joy and love and uh, walking with the king himself, where every tear is wiped away. We have that to look forward to. So it's a reminder for us not to be just discouraged when, when the things in the present, our current circumstances, are, are looking bleak. They say, actually, we have this living hope beyond what we see now. It's the return of Christ. 
It's also a reminder then for us to not just live for the moment, to not just live for now and make our decisions based off of what like feels good now and what sounds good now. Right? To, to not live with like this temporary, short-sighted view of, of things, but, but instead of having this like narrow lens of what life should be about based on my you know, next like, you know, week or year or whatever, to actually zoom out enough to see the big picture and live in light of eternity and the eventual return of Christ. Here, here's how I know that we're bad at that. Here's how I know that we're, we're bad at living with eternity in view. Two words. Taco Bell. Some Taco Bell enthusiasts in the room. I know that, but stay with me here. Taco Bell seems great in the moment. In the short term, right? Let's go have a feast at Taco Bell. But there's some consequences coming an hour or two later down the road that we all know about. And, and yet we still do it. We still go and get that Taco Bell or replace, you know, if you love Taco Bell, you know, put a different fast food title in there. And it's the same is true, right? You're probably going to regret it later. There are consequences later for you, for your bathroom. But we do it anyways, right? We, just, we, we still lean into it. And in a much greater way than we, our lives, whether it's our moral choices, our choices with relationships, um, again, our obedience to God's word or lack of it is marked by just this temporary, short-term, what maybe feels good now rather than having this bigger picture. What is the trajectory of my life? Am I, am I living in light of the return of Christ? If Jesus returns today or now or in the midst of me doing whatever I'm doing, is that going to be a good decision? You see? So for the Christian, there's, there's great encouragement to live in light of this and, and hope that there's restoration in the future. And even just think about that word, restoration. What does that word mean? It means taking something that is down and healing it, taking something that is broken and putting it back together, something that is, you know, uh, broken down and fallen out of use, being restored back to its right purpose and place. Notice with me that this language of restoration from verse 21, again, heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything. Notice this isn't the language of escape. And sometimes that's the language we think about when we think about eternity or eschatology or, or heaven. We think about, well, like, man, God's just going to whisk us away to the clouds and everything down here is going to burn up. Um, but notice that's not the language of restoration. Restoration talks about, again, Jesus coming back, and not necessarily sweeping us away, but him coming back here and taking our broken world and restoring it. Like we think about, you know, Genesis chapter 1, we think of Eden and we think of perfect relationship uh, with God and man and perfect relationship between human beings and uh, right relationship with even the created world and the animal kingdom and so on. There's going to be this, this restoration, this new heavens and new earth that the Lord himself will usher in where we'll live in his renewed good world forever. So that's the picture of eternity we get, not just he's going to scoop us away to a cloud and all of this is going to burn up. There's going to be, no, healing, restoration. Refresh new heavens and new earth that we get to live in. So, refreshment in the present. Restoration in the future. And all of this is foretold <coughs> in the past. 
you saw as we read throughout all these references to the prophets and to what was going on in the Old Testament. We see this specifically in verse 18 mentioned. And then even just look uh, as we read 21 to 24. Look at all these references. It says, heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. From among your own people, you must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. See, verse 21, God promised uh, this long ago through his prophets. And we see reference to Moses and reference to Samuel. And earlier we already talked about reference to Abraham. He's like, look back how all these things were foretold long ago. There would be a prophet like Moses, verse 22 speaks of, that would be raised up. We know this is fulfilled in Christ, who leads the new exodus out of the Egypt of sin and death and slavery. We can't go in. Verse 24, Samuel and all the prophets have foretold these days. So we, we can't go into each of those in detail, but, but the point is that the Old Testament prophets speak of and point us forward to Christ to be prepared for his arrival, to see that, that all along this has been God's plan. There's two quick implications of this. One, notice that, that the words and writings of the prophets in the Old Testament are the words of God. Verse 21, it says, it says God uh, he promised to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. So when we read the prophets, and see the promises of Scripture that they spoke and wrote. They're, the, again, the very words of God. God spoke through His prophets, through the Scriptures. This is why we uh, think about, again, the doctrine of Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, that Scripture is God-breathed. It's the inspired Word of God. As we read the prophets, or as we read the apostles in, in the New Testament, in their writings, as we read the Gospels, we see that these are the very words of God. So this just lends us to a, to a high view of Scripture, because it's the voice of God. That's one implication. The second is, again, just looking at all that God has planned to do. All along, he has purpose to bless us and save us and heal us and refresh us and restore his broken world. Now, you might be sitting there and wondering, well, how, I don't know. How, how do we know that this is true? How do we know this isn't just wishful thinking? When that question comes up in Scripture over and over again, the Scriptures point us to the cross of Christ. Saying, you want to know that God's really all in on this whole salvation thing for you? You want to know that God is really for you, that God really loves you? Look to the cross. First John says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Romans 5.8, God demonstrate his love, uh, demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How did God show and demonstrate his love? Christ died for us. You want to know what love is? Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Romans 8.32 says this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Again, Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Saying God did not spare his son. 
But, but he instead gave him up for us all. Christ went to the cross. And so if he has done that, already gone to those great lengths to save you and display his love for you, he's not going to stop now. He's not going to change his mind about you, right? The, the payment has already been made. He's already showed us he is for us. So look to Jesus and see, right? When, when those ridiculed him and mocked him on the cross, come down and save yourself. He stayed and gave his life for us. And so I ask you again, we're, we're going to end where we started. What is that picture of God that you have in your heart? The things that we think and say about God are the most important things that we think and say. And so can we look to Acts chapter 3 and remember that God wants to bless us. He is for us and he showed this to us by sending his son to die for us. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you and we, we thank you for this great uh, salvation you have given us in your son, Jesus. Thank you, Father, that you did not spare your own son, but you gave him up for us all. Thank you, Jesus, that you laid down your life for us on the cross and that you want to bless us and lead us to repentance turning us from our sin, apart in our wicked ways, in our self-destructive ways, in our destructive ways, and eternity apart from you and, and judgment, and you instead want to turn us to yourself, that we might receive your love, that we might receive your forgiveness, that we might receive your spirit, that times of refreshing from the Lord may come in our hearts and in our lives and in our world. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who has not put their trust in you, that now would be that moment that they would cry out to you, Lord, repenting of sin, acknowledging their need, saying, yes, Jesus, I need you as my Lord and Savior. And for the rest of us, Father, who, who do know you and are walking with you, encourage us, remind us that you are good and for us. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat>